you ever wonder what a preacher's thinking about in the morning, take you through my morning. Woke up at 5.15 and hit the snooze till 6.15, which is not typical, but this morning for some reason I could not get out of bed. And then I finally got her going and, and um, got in the truck and was driving here to church. And your mind is kind of thinking through, I mean, when you, ha- when you have the opportunity to preach, you really do want to think about what you're going to talk about. That's an important thing I've learned that you should involve your brain before you involve your mouth. So you're thinking about, I'm, I'm deep into thinking about John 7, thinking about my papers on the floor there now. No, no, no. And, uh, and so your, your mind is going through all this. And then I just pull behind a guy who has uh, three bumper stickers on his bumper at the back of his truck. The first one is one that, um, don't, don't put it up yet, just wait a second. Very good. Uh, first one says, mean people breed little mean people. So I'm thinking, hmm, in some regard, then I have three little mean people because I'm sure in some way I'm mean. Then he has a second one that I could tell there's some angst, and it said, I used to be connected to a mean person, now I'm free, and I'm assuming he got divorced or something like that. It's a guy. But then the third bumper sticker is one that I want to show you. It was this exact bumper sticker. I found it on, online. I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Gandhi. Gandhi was asked a question about Christianity. Actually, if you know anything about Mahatma Gandhi, he was very much intrigued by Jesus Christ. Being from a caste system, the concept of God Almighty coming and the picture that Gandhi saw of Christ dying on a cross all bloodied with a loincloth which would show the lowest of all the castes intrigued him. But Christians so unintrigued him that he rejected it. That was one of the things that, that Mahatma Gandhi had a problem with. Now this guy, along with the mean people thing, and I used to be connected to a mean person. I don't know, I'm not trying to do psychoanalysis on the guy that I was following. I hope it wasn't anybody here in the room. But uh, there is something about Christianity that people are turned off to because of Christ's followers. There's something about us as they look at Christianity and they, they, they don't have a disconnect. You can't disconnect and say, I'll follow Jesus. But there's something about the church that I can't stand People say to me all the time, I, I will not go to organized religion. And I say, great, come to hope. We're about as unorganized as you can get. But in some way, that's, they can't stand the idea of, of people who gather and profess something even though they're somewhat messed up. Some of that is just because we lived in a messed up world. And it's just going to be that way. But you know what? A lot of it is because it's fun to be mean. It's fun to be right and to be a jerk about it. And I think Christians sometimes fall in that category. We're in a series right now that I hope by the time we're done with it that we'll have taken serious, serious changes in our lives and in our behavior. We're in a series right now in the middle of the book of John called Who Do You Say That I Am? Meeting Jesus Christ through his signs and through his miracles and through his teaching. We are right now going to enter into a phase of this chunk 
I think, a very exciting phase. We've, we've been through uh, the first three, six chapters of the book of John, if you've been with us. If you haven't, you could read them in about 10 minutes and, and you'd be caught up. You could just grab a Bible right there in front of you, read the first six chapters, or do it on your own, you're caught up. We're right now in chapter 7. Chapter 7, Jesus is going to go back to Jerusalem. Now, you have to think of Jerusalem for Jesus at this point in his ministry as being a very hazardous place. Baghdad? Hmm? This is a very hazardous place for Jesus to be. We're going to see that throughout his, his trip into there. He, the Gospel of John is written a little bit differently than, other, than the other Gospels. Gospel of John is going to have Jesus going back to Jerusalem, and then in, they're not really going to mention anything else in the, uh, in the ministry of Jesus, he pretty much stays in Jerusalem, and then he's going to bug out for just a little bit, go to a place called Bethany in chapter 11, and then we're, and in chapter 12, he's going to be in the outskirts too. He's going to be in and out of Jerusalem, and then he comes back to, in chapter 13. Chapter 13, till the end of the book, chapter 21, is all about the last week of Christ's life. So this is a very important turning point we're going in right now in chapter 7. So if you got a Bible with you, crack it open to John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the first 24 verses of, of this section right here. Let's get this thing started here. Starting in verse 1. I know you're not there yet, but I'm going to start anyway. <clears throat> John chapter 7, starting in verse 1. After this, now remember that whole discourse he had with the I am the bread of life, chapter 6. I am the bread of life. He, first of all, he, he makes bread and makes fish, and they eat their fill, and he goes in this whole fill about, I am the bread of life, you have to eat from me, and drink my blood in order to find life, that's whole chapter 6, he wasn't in Jerusalem then, he was in the regions of Galilee, around the Sea of Tiberias, up in that area, and he says, after this, John went around in Galilee, it's a northern region up there, purposely staying away from Judea, where Jerusalem is, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life, now, Real quickly here, whenever the phrase the Jews comes into, uh, they're all Jews, right? Jesus was a Jew. I mean, his disciples were Jews. They're all Jews. But when the phrase the Jews in the book of John means usually those religious leaders or those Jewish people who are caught into the, the system of religiosity but were missing the Messiah as he had come. That, when that phrase is used, so just kind of put that in context. The Jews were there waiting to take his life. They were. We saw that in previous chapters. They were already figuring out how can we get rid of this guy. Okay. But when the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles was near, stop right there. What is this feast thing? Now, I want to show you from, from Deuteronomy chapter 16. The Jewish people had three primary feasts that were big time. Big festivals. Now they had the weekly feast called the Sabbath. They had the Sabbath meal, so that was every week. But three festivals where Jewish people, if you were from 15 miles from Jerusalem, which is quite a ways. In, in those days, it's quite a ways. Hey, Jesus never traveled more than 200 miles from his home. Okay, so if you drew a circle from 15 miles, you were required by law to go to Jerusalem for these feasts. All Jews were expected to, but 15 miles by law, by the Jewish law, you were supposed to go to Jerusalem for these three feasts. And here they are. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place you will choose, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Unleavened Bread, anyone? Passover, very good. 
Passover, you know, when Charlton Heston puts the blood on the, on the, on the doorway and the angel of death goes by, Moses, that, that whole thing, that's what happens there. That's a feast to remember, to remember what they had, the Feast of Weeks. What do we call that? And the New Testament's got a new name. Starts with the P, first letter's P, second letter's Pentecost. Pentecost, right. 50 days after the Passover meal, the Passover feast, was this festival called Pentecost, 50 days later. And what that was, it was uh, right around the time of the first fruits, the harvest would start to come in. So uh, Passover falls right around where our Easter is, early spring. Then seven weeks later, kind of in the middle of the summer-ish, somewhere in there, uh, matters kind of where Passover falls, but uh, 50 days later was this Feast of, of, of Pentecost, or what they called the Feast of, of Weeks. Then at the end of the summer, very late at the harvest time, when everything was going to be harvested, primarily from tree and from vine, when everything was harvested, they had a thing called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was also called the Feast of Booths, uh, Feast of Tents. And what this one was, was they would go to the next one. Oh, Ah, uh, yeah, go one more, I'm going to have you come back here, sorry. They would actually build these things, and they would, would celebrate in them for eight days. Eight days, I'll show you from Leviticus 23, in, in fact, what they were doing there, but they would, that'd be kind of where they'd go. They'd make a tent, kind of, they'd look like this, it's called, a, it's got a bunch of names, but a Sukkoth, I think is one of the ways, is that right, Aaron, how they say it, Sukkoth? There's a bunch of ways to pronounce it. Um, and then, there are still modern ones, I've got a couple pictures here of, there's a modern Sukkoth. And another one there, they would make these tents, and they would most of the time just festival in them, but sometimes people even slept in them. If they were hardcore, they would live in and out of this tent for eight days. Now flip back, let's see how good you are and how quickly you can go to Leviticus 23. That was nice, Jess. Very good. Nicely done. Okay. Uh, Leviticus 23 talks about where does this come from, what's the purpose. And this one describes, Leviticus 23 explains all the festivals. I'm just going to tell you about the one that Jesus is going to be going to. And it's very important. It's very important, but not for this week, for when Jesus talks later. But I've got to show you this week because I got to. Leviticus 23. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles uh, uh, begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. Got it? First day. Big deal. Big deal. Big festival that day. Then, for seven days, present offerings made to the Lord by fire. And on the eighth day, hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly. Do no regular works. Got it? Kind of like the Olympics. Opening ceremonies. Closing ceremonies, eight days apart. Very important to remember. We're going to see that in just a second, and we're going to see it next week, why the closing is very good. Live in those booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths so that your descendants will know that I made the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So there's something more going on here than just, just that it's harvest time. There's something more than thanking God for bringing harvest. There's something theological happening where they were supposed to remember that God brought the people out of Israel, but he didn't do it overnight. In other words, they lived in these temporary huts, and it was, they were hoping that something was going to happen. It's really important. This, temp, this whole festival is a festival based on the hope of what God is going to do. You're going to see when Jesus starts declaring things in his festival why that's so important. This is a festival of hope of what God will do, not what he's already done. Now, there's one other thing you should know. Is this festival 
was theological in that sense. It also, like I said, was about harvest, but it happened in September or October. And because of that, because it was in September and October, you had diminishing daylight. We're going to see that in John 8. Jesus is going to pick up on that whole concept of light because it's getting dark, darker earlier. Okay, now, see how quick you can go seamlessly up to the next one. Keep going. Nice. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. We had to hire her. That's great. Okay, now, let's pick up what's going on here. Verse 3. This, this feast is, is right, it's about ready to happen in Jerusalem. And his brothers, Jesus' brothers, his physical brothers, Jesus had physical brothers. I mean, you know, not like brothers like, hey bro, no, brothers like, hey bro, you know, or whatever. Uh, said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now listen to this. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Where do you pick that up from? It sounds like they're, they got a great plan here. Listen, man. If you are the Messiah, if that's really who you are, go to the opening ceremonies. At the opening ceremonies, do the bread thing. That was awesome. Do the bread thing. Make loaves for everybody. You can even have the insignia of this year's, you know, Olympics on it. That would be awesome. Everyone will know who you are. Now look at the way they say it. Just real, look real carefully. It says, you ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples. They're distinguishing a little bit between who they are and the disciples. In other words, those people who want to follow you, they'll, they'll see you. But I don't think Jesus' brothers got it at all. It might have even been done mockingly. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. What they wanted him to do, what their plan was for him to go global. It's time to, it's time to network. It's time to make it big. And Jesus has other plans. Look at John uh, verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast because for me, the right time has not yet come. Jesus was very careful to let no one at all allow, him to, allow them to pick the time or the place or how it was going to happen that he was going to be made known. Wasn't going to do that. He says, for me, the time has not yet come. And Jesus, that's a favorite phrase in the Gospel of John. He loves to say that phrase. The time has not yet come. And it hadn't come yet. And Jesus did not want to go during the opening ceremonies. Now, one of the most confusing verses in all the book of John. Verse 9. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Wait a minute. I mean, the time wasn't right now, but now it's right. I'll go. I used to read it that way thinking, this is bizarre. What is the deal? I think the key is in the last part there where it says, he went also, but not publicly. He went in secret. Jesus Christ did not want to go to the opening ceremonies and let it be. He wants somebody else make him king the way they wanted to make him king. He knew that Jerusalem was a dangerous place for him to be. If he goes there, if he goes there, he knows that under the wrong conditions, he will be arrested. And he does not want to die during this feast. 
This is September, October. He's not going to die during the Feast of Tabernacles. He's going to die during what? Passover. He's got to wait six months or so. So he can't do it now. He's got to wait until then. He has to die as the Passover lamb. So he's got to be careful here because Jerusalem's a very dangerous place for him to be. His brothers wanted him to be something. His brothers wanted to uh, create in him. The, his brothers wanted him to go public. His brothers wanted him to be a Republican Jesus or a Democrat Jesus. And Jesus says, I'll come and do it on my agenda. And he did. He came to the feast later. Verse 11. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. What does that look like? I don't know. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. So you're either a good man or you're a wicked man. One or the other. So you get this crowd at the opening ceremonies thinking, is this going to be him? He doesn't come, then he doesn't make himself known then. Some say he's a great guy. Others say, no. He deceives everybody. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Verse 14, not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. So he doesn't even begin to teach anything until halfway through. Remember, this is an eight-day-long deal. It's four days in. Then he knows he's around until then. And there's all this division about who he is. The Jews were amazed at his teaching and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Wow. This guy really rocks. This guy really teaches. And you got to understand something that's very important in that culture was the way things were passed down was from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi to rabbi. In order to be a teacher, you had to have, be a mentor, uh, excuse me, a mentee of someone who was great. And so if the rabbi, if your rabbi taught you, you could say, well, I'm a disciple of so-and-so, and they'd go, ah, okay. I went to Harvard. Ah, got it. That's what they're saying here is, how did this man get such learning without having studied under a rabbi? In other words, where's your pedigree, pal? Who are you? Jesus answered that. This is a beautiful answer. Verse 16. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Oh, good, good. Who's your rabbi? Well, I'm going to show you. You want a rabbi? I'll give you a rabbi. <clears throat> Verse 17, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from my rabbi, God Almighty, or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself, but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You guys want a pedigree? I'll give you a pedigree. The father is my rabbi. That's a pretty good, I think that's pretty good, you know, that's like Harvard on steroids. That is a good pedigree. That is a good thing to put on your wall. God taught me. The father taught me. By the way, why are you guys arguing about pedigrees when you don't even follow the rules anyway? You don't even follow the rules anyway. Why are you trying to kill me? Look at their answer. You're demon-possessed. Not a good thing to say to Jesus, by the way. <clears throat> now, it might have been similar to saying, you're nuts, you're crazy. 
but it adds a little flavor when you're having a theological discussion, right? You know, you're demon-possessed. Ooh. Who is trying to kill you? Well, you are. How do I know that? It says so. It said it in John 7, 1. It said you're trying to kill him. Okay, I know. They didn't read that. But they were. They were out trying to seek how to kill him. And look at Jesus' argument back. John 7, 21. Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Oh, this is a brilliant argument. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? I don't have a shiny diamond. I wish I did. Who can tell me what's going on here? The, what's he talking about? The, the, the healing the whole man on the Sabbath. Anybody? Yes, sir, up there. Uh, close. That's John 9. You got the right idea, though. Yes. John 5, the last time he was in Jerusalem. I don't have a dime. Sorry, man. Just uh, take a rain check. Uh, John 5, the last time he was in Jerusalem, he heals this guy. And they're all in uproar, not because he heals them, but because it's on the Sabbath. He heals a guy on the Sabbath, and they freak out. Now listen to this argument. He says to them, listen, Moses gave you circumcision. Circumcision was on the eighth day. When a male child was born, on the eighth day you circumcised the child. If it fell on a Sabbath, it got a pass. Exempt. You can circumcise the kid on the eighth day. It's okay. If any of these festivals happen to land on the Sabbath, it's okay to set up your tent on that day in the, in the tabernacles or whatever. It gets, a, it gets an exemption. What does Jesus say? Am I trying to get rid of the Sabbath? No. But I'm healing a guy, and guess what? If, if you can circumcise a child on the eighth day, shouldn't a man who's lame all of his life, or 30-some years, and, and I heal him, shouldn't that get an exemption? You are so religious, you are completely missing the point. That's what he's saying. You are so Christian, you've forgotten Christ, would be our answer, would be Gandhi's answer. Yeah, sure, you know your Bible. Where's Jesus? That would be, that would be the equivalent of what Jesus is saying here. You go to church religiously on Sunday, but on Monday, do you love on your neighbor? Then, then who cares about Sunday? Don't bother. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's radical stuff. And he closes by saying this. Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. Whew. Now, I'm going to prepare for a time of communion. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that before you take communion, you should do a little time of self-examination. time where you just get with the Lord and you... You say, Lord, what's in my life right now that, that you'd like to change? What's in my life right now that you'd like me to be different? What's in my life that is not lined up with who you are? Not what religion tells me I should do. Not what someone next to me says I should do, but you tell me I should do. I'm gonna, from this passage, I want to offer four things uh, for you to prayerfully consider. And I'm going to ask you to pray. And I'm going to read them while we're praying. It's just a time to get ready for a time of communion. So let's pray together, and I'm just going to ask these questions as you pray. And then just listen, 
for the Spirit to see if he brings up anything. Lord, we just want to come to you right now with open hearts because we would hate to have a passage like this go through us and we end up being just like them, being more religious on the outside of it and not being followers of you. God, I pray that no one in this room would be guilty of that bumper sticker. So our first question this morning, just looking at Jesus' brothers, is are we making you out to be someone we want you to be and not letting you be who you should be? Are we trying to make a Jesus in our image? Lord, for some of us in this room, we maybe have never settled the question of who you are. We may be like the crowds. We may be thinking, well, I like part of Jesus' teachings, but other parts I don't care for. Jesus, you're a package deal. The hard and the light. Just like the crowds are saying, he's a good man. Others say, he's out to deceive people. God, are we doing that? Is there something in us that's not settled on the question in either our mind or our heart or our lifestyle that doesn't match up with the who is Jesus question? Right now, Lord, by your Spirit, communicate that to us. Lord, our third question this morning. comes from verse 17 which says if anyone chooses to do God's will he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Lord a lot of us want to know and want to meet the real Jesus and here it tells us how to do it. How do we meet the real Jesus? If anyone chooses to do God's will. Lord there are things in our life right now that we know that we should not be involved in. There are things right now in our life that we know that you want us to be doing and we're not. And these things are hindering us from seeing the real Jesus. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Lord, if we simply decided to obey you no matter what and then seek to have you show yourself to us. Holy Spirit, just answer that question for us in the quietness of our hearts and tell us what it is you want us to do. And last, Lord, we just come to you. And I think as American Christians, where it is simple to be a Christian here compared to other countries, we get so lax that we forget the main thing. And that's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The propositions in Scripture, the theology, is a means to the end of knowing Jesus Christ. Oh, Jesus, don't, don't allow us to fall into loving the doctrine, but not loving you. God, are we becoming in our hearts religious people? Are we becoming in our hearts people who are more into the system of Christianity and not into the heartbeat of Christianity? Oh, God, would that not be true? I pray that not in my life. I pray that in my family's life and in this church 
would this church be characterized by love? So right now, Lord, would you just communicate to us ways that we're being so rigid in our systems, in our religion, that we're leaving no room for Christ? And the ways you want to surprise us in our lives, right now would you show that to us? Lord Jesus, I just ask that you'd continue to teach us through this series in John. I know I have learned just even last night as I really meditated on this section. And seeing what you're going to do in the rest of this feast is really exciting. And I pray, God, that we would be different people when we leave this feast in a couple weeks. That we would be different people. Prepare us, God, for time now as we come to you and worship. That we can worship you and place you in the right place where you belong. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.